Hi, Journey. You want to look like that, don't you? Yeah. Welcome, especially if you're a guest. We're delighted you're here. We've been praying that God would meet you right in the place where you are today. And uh, we hope and pray that that will happen with you. It's the second weekend of Lent. And Lent is this season of spiritual preparation, spiritual readiness for Good Friday and then Easter weekend, uh, the weekend when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, of course, on Good Friday for the sins of all of humanity, every single person who ever lived, whoever will live. And then on Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. And when he rose, he's the victor over death, hell, and the grave wasn't he? And we'll celebrate that together in just a few weeks from now. If you weren't here last week, uh, then you're joining us the second week of this series that we call XT, or Cross Training, and it's a Lenten message series, all with the aim of preparing, helping us prepare our souls before the Lord for everything he wants to do in us and through us between now and Easter weekend. Last weekend, we started out by talking about forgiveness And I want you to know that I prayed for every single one of you over the course of the past week, especially praying for those of you who stood to your feet last weekend, acknowledging that you have forgiveness work to do with some people. And my prayer very simply for you was that you would go and that you would have that, you know, that conversation with that person who you needed to forgive and get around forgiveness with, so on and so forth. I prayed for you that way. Now, If you procrastinate, let me say it this way, if you carried out that conversation, I want to say way to go, good job, and I hope you feel light and release and newness around all of that. I'm sure some of you are walking in that, and I'd be willing to bet that some of you procrastinated that conversation, right? You put it off and it wasn't necessarily intentional, it just didn't happen for this reason or that, and I would encourage you with this, you have today. You have today to have that conversation. Tomorrow, we don't know about, right? We don't know what might happen. But you have today, and it is a gift. And I encourage you, I exhort you, I extol you to go walk out the forgiveness deal with the person you need to walk it out with. Just go. Get it resolved. You'll be glad you did. I know you will. We're going to shift gears today from the subject of forgiveness And we're going to talk about another big Christian word, an R word this time. The word is repentance. Repentance. And repentance is not a word that we bandy about very much outside of Christian circles, is it? It isn't very often that you're at an ordinary run-of-the-mill dinner party and find yourself engaged in conversation about the latest trend lines in repentance, talking about your latest repentance experience, or sharing with other parents about how repentant or unrepentant your kids are or were. Right? It doesn't happen very often. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's ever happened to me. And to start this repentance conversation, could I ask you to do something that's pretty vulnerable, maybe even a bit gnarly for you? Could I just ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and just sort of create some space, you and the Lord? And would you just think back over the course of the past seven days of your life, just the past week, and this is where it could get a little gnarly for you, Would you just bring to the front of your mind the worst thing that you did in the last seven days? The thing that you would consider to be the biggest sin, quote-unquote biggest sin, of the past seven days of your life. And just to sort of stir your thinking up, maybe for you it was a lie that you told, Or maybe for you it was something that you said about someone behind their back. Maybe it was this one thing that you did. Or maybe it was a series of things that you did. Could have been an attitude that you harbored. Maybe you're still harboring. Perhaps it's something you muttered under your breath. Maybe it was the way you treated that person those people? Did you just get in your mind the thing that you consider to be the, quote, biggest sin, worst thing, quote, unquote, that you did in the last seven days? All right, now would you look up? 
And I just want you to turn to the person sitting next to you. And I just want you to share that. No, just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. We're not going to do that. No. No. That will be the confession weekend that's coming. <laughs> kidding about that too. So now that you've got the worst thing that you did in the last seven days, could I ask you this question? Have you repented of that? The thing that you're calling the worst thing that you did in the last seven days, have you repented of it? Now, some of you are asking me the question right now, what in the world is repentance? What is that? Absolutely, if you've been around the church, if you've been around Christianity very much at all, you've probably heard that word, maybe even used it on occasion, but what really is it? Technically, repentance is defined this way. I put it on your notes page and it'll be on the screen. Watch this. Repentance, very technically, is a change of place or condition. Get that? So you think about that thing that you brought to mind, the thing that you're calling the worst thing that you did in the last seven days. Have you changed your place or condition around that thing? Let me keep going. To repent, change the mind, or relent. Have you done that, those, around that thing that you brought to mind? Now let's turn it theologically toward God. Regret or sorrow, have you expressed that, those, around that thing that you did in the last seven days? Regret or sorrow accompanied, watch this, by a true change of heart toward God. Have you done that? Have you stepped through that process? Now let me ask you this. In light of that definition of repentance, have you repented of whatever it is that you're calling the biggest sin, worst deal that you've done in the past week? Now, get this. I didn't ask you to bring that ugly, and it is, isn't it? For me, it's ugly. I didn't ask you to bring that ugly thing to mind just so you feel bad about yourself or to beat you up about your sin over the course of the past week, I'm not trying to cast any kind of pall over this time that we have. Rather, I'm asking you to bring that thing to mind and consider how you left it with both God and with the people who you may have sinned against or person you may have sinned against. Because here's the deal. Our conduct, our behavior in the aftermath of our poor behavior really, really matters. Our conduct in the aftermath, in the wake of our sin, really, really matters. Sin has this powerful tendency to ruin our lives, destroy all kinds of people and things around us, which means it gets really, really important for us to know what to do with our sin in its wake. Of utmost importance. And because repentance is such a confusing, misunderstood subject, I think it's really important that we start off by talking about what repentance is not. We're going to take it from that angle first. What repentance is not. Number one, I'm going to step through about seven things. They're not on your notes page. You might jot some things down around them as you feel nudged. Anytime a person takes a posture of, I see your sin, but not mine. I confess your sin, but not mine. Your sin is really, really ugly. Mine isn't so ugly. That's not repentance. And lots and lots and lots of people do that. They think it's repentance, but it is not, not even close. And you know that you're a person who does that. And you know that you're married to a person who does that, or you know you work with a person who does that, or you know that you're best friends with a person who does that, because you never ever hear yourself or your spouse or your colleague or your best friend say these words, I'm sorry, I screwed up, it was my fault, I was wrong. You know those people? Of course, none of us in this room are those people, it's other people, right? They're really, really willing to talk about everybody else's mess-ups, how everybody else screws up, but they don't ever look in the mirror, right? They don't ever apologize. They don't ever say that they were wrong. They don't ever admit any wrongdoing. That's not repentance. Number two, the second thing that repentance is not is this deal where we apologize to God and then we think he's somehow in our debt. You know that 
deal? People do that all the time. People know they're behaving badly. They're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so they say, I get it, God. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing that. And then they put a period, and then they say, and now, God, that I've apologized for doing that, you, God, are in my debt. You, God, are obligated to fix the thing that my sin is wrecking. Right? You, God, are obligated to fix the mess that I'm making in my poor behavior. And what happens is that person goes right on, they behave badly, and they think merely that they, because they apologize to God, that he owes them something. But they don't have any intention of changing whatsoever. They say, sorry God, now you owe me. Sorry God, now you gotta do this. Sorry God, now you do this. It's sort of a subtle way of trying to manipulate the God of the universe. He's not too subject to our manipulation, is he? That isn't repentance. Third thing that people do that is not repentance. They keep talking about how bad they feel. Right? They do this thing, they feel badly about it, but they don't ever change the behavior that makes them feel badly. And they go, like, what? Why do I feel so badly? Well, you feel badly because you're behaving badly. God's hardwired you, every single one of us as a matter of fact, from our very creation to have this innate, wired-in sense of right and wrong. That means we know every time we're behaving cross-grain with the way God made us to live, of course you feel bad. But feeling bad without any change in action that leads to the bad feeling, that's not repentance. Not repentance. Fourth thing that is not true repentance is this, watch this, confess, so I come clean, I apologize for my sin, and then I do the same thing all over again. You know this deal? I behave badly, I confess it, I apologize for it, and then I do the same thing all over again. We know people who do that. Sometimes we are the people who do that aren't we? And what happens is somebody confronts us, they call us out, and we go, yep, you're absolutely right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. And you have this great conversation, maybe across a coffee shop table, and you get up from the conversation, you even sometimes give each other hugs, right? You give each other a hug, and you go away, and the person who sort of called the other person out for their stuff, they're like, yes, I brought them back into fellowship, I helped restore them, there's redemption there, it's going to be all great, and then like three days later, there it is again. Eek. Wait a minute, I thought they said they were, what? And so you have another little sit down. And they say, I'm sorry, you're right, I'm wrong. But what they don't ever say, they keep it inside. And it's smart to keep this inside because what they're saying is, I'm going to keep right on doing the wrong thing and I'm going to do it again and again and again no matter what you say, no matter how many times you confront me because I kind of like it. That is not repentance. It's just this vicious sin cycle again and again and again and again. Something else people do that isn't true repentance Number five is they play this devil-made-me-do-it blame game. Right? You know that deal? It's always someone else's fault. They do something that's like 17 lines across the boundary. Right? And then they get confronted and they say, well, the reason that I punched him in the face was because he made me so angry. So it's their fault you punched him in the face, right? Uh-uh. Or something like this. The reason I was embezzling the money was because they never treated me fairly. They were underpaying me for like decades, right? We're square now. They always have an excuse and it's always someone else's fault. This one actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, they step up to the tree, they eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. God shows up and goes, Adam, what's the deal? What's Adam do? Points a finger, it's her, God. You gave me this faulty woman. I want a refund. Take her back. She was broken out of the box. So then God looks at Eve. What's your deal? And she really does it. The devil, he made me do it. It was the devil. He sucked me in. He lured me in. Uh-uh. It wasn't the devil's fault. It wasn't Eve's fault. It's not someone else's fault, anyone else's fault when I choose to sin. No one else's fault when I choose to sin. 
mine. You and you alone are responsible before God for your choices. No one else is. The devil made me do it. Someone else's fault. That is not repentance. Number six. How about this one? The at least I didn't and then fill in the blank excuse. You know this one? The at least I didn't. That is not repentance. You're talking with somebody about their sin and they tell you, oh, you're just overreacting, making way, you're blowing it way out of proportion. You're freaking out. And then sort of icing on the cake of that conversation, they say something like this. Well, it isn't like I killed anyone. And get this, anytime anybody plays that card or one like it, they're just trying to paint their behavior as being not all that bad, aren't they? They're justifying And what we have to hold up constantly is this reality. We're not comparing them to Jeffrey Dahmer. That isn't the conversation that we're having. We're not giving out, you didn't murder anyone, award certificates to anybody. The standard, the standard of holiness and righteousness and morality is God and God alone. It's him. And what's true is that every single one of us, we've fallen short, the scripture tells us. We've fallen short, way short. Now, we've all fallen short, absolutely. But what's true inside of that is that God never stops loving you, ever. He never stops loving you. No matter how short you fall again and again and again, he's pursuing you. He loves you. He's never gonna stop loving you We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And the real, genuine, true, God-honoring repentance deal never measures my bad behavior against anyone else's, quote, worse behavior. Because they're not the standard. God is. And the seventh thing that some people do, none of us, of course, there isn't real repentance, is they blame it on the poor parenting in my past, and then they duck and run behind that. Right? They say something like, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You're right. I'm wrong. But this thing inside of me, it goes back to my overly harsh toilet training growing up. Right? They say something like, you have no idea what I went through at the hands of my parents as they toilet trained me. And so that poor behavior is just sort of part of who I am. It's the result of that dumb old mom and dad. That isn't repentance. All that is is an excuse. It's just an excuse. Now hear me with crystal clarity. I have real sympathy. I have real mercy for people who experienced terrible things growing up. I know. Lots and lots and lots of us experienced things that should never ever happen to people. Especially at the hands of people who are supposed to love us and care for us and shepherd us and I have real mercy and real sympathy. But still, excuses don't ever pass for repentance. Ever. No matter what happened way back then. Now here's an introspective question, thinking about the worst thing you did in the past seven days. Have you tried to use any of those non-repentance lines with that thing? the thing that you're calling the worst thing that you did in the past week? Have you tried to pass off one of those non-repentance lines as real repentance? You ducked and you ran out from behind it. You tried to make it somebody else's deal, someone else's fault. Blame it on your parent, whatever. If you did, the goal is not in any way to beat you up with that. Rather, the goal is to invite you to the real repentance that God invites you to. Because what's absolutely true is that God sees that sin. He knows you can't keep it hidden, covered up, buried from him, swept under any... He he has x-ray vision. He sees it. He knows it. And he doesn't desire to beat you up with it either. What he desires is to bring redemption to it. That's why he died on the cross. That's the very reason he went to the cross, for you. He loves you that much that that thing that you did, that you're calling the worst thing you did in the last week he wants to take it away 
He wants to relieve you of it. He wants it to be not a part of your life. He wants to make it new. New. All gone. Done. Bought and paid for on the cross. Real, true repentance is the goal of God. It isn't to spank us. It's genuine repentance. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul, you can turn there if you've got a Bible. The Apostle Paul unpacks what is the seminal conversation about what true repentance is in the whole of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 11, here's how it starts out. Paul writes this. I'm not sorry, I'm going to unpack this for you in just a minute. So I'm going to run into this and you're kind of going to be scratching your head about some things, but I'll get to it in just a second. I'm not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you, here it is, to repent and change your ways. And so you see what Paul's talking about there is this other letter that he sent to the Corinthian church that we don't have. We do not have that letter. No record of it anywhere in scriptures. Scholars understand that the Apostle Paul wrote four different letters to the church at Corinth. We have two of them, 50% of them. They are the books of First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament of your Bible. The other two have been lost somewhere in cyberspace. We can't find them. One of the missing letters is this severe letter that Paul references. So Paul writes this letter. He sends it to the church at a town called Corinth. By the way, Paul helped plant that church. And he sends this, quote, severe letter calling out the sin of some people in the church. And so that opening paragraph is about him talking about these mixed emotions that he had around sending that severe letter. He says, I was sorry at first, but then I wasn't sorry. Because it caused you to do what? Repent. It caused you to repent, turn, change your ways, change your mind, change your heart, run toward God. It did all those things. And Paul lets us into this rare space, sort of inside of his heart and soul, where we actually see him, we hear him vacillating back and forth through this expression of tension that any of us are ever going to feel when we ever have to go confront somebody because of their sin. Have you ever had to do that? It ain't fun. Not even close to fun, is it? It is the furthest thing from a pleasurable experience. No person should ever take any kind of pleasure in bringing pain into the lives of other people. If you do, that's just not right. Now get this, though. Sometimes, even often, loving people requires us to confront them. Doesn't it? And if God ever taps you on the shoulder for that kind of a ministry, it requires courage, it requires faith, it requires dump truck loads of grace, right? Because whenever you go and confront somebody because of their sin, it's really likely that you're going to be misunderstood. Entirely misunderstood. But you've got to remember this. All that is, is a ministry of love. It's a ministry of love every single time. It's a ministry of love. You're desiring to bring redemption and reconciliation and healing, right standing into the lives of people with God and with other people. And when we go and we have those kinds of hard conversations, we have to be willing to be misunderstood. We have to be willing to suffer changes in relationships. We have to be willing to suffer, watch this, even the loss of relationships. Because sometimes people who we go and have hard conversations with about their sin, they turn on us, don't they? They stab us in the back. They malign us. It happened to the Apostle Paul, incidentally. Many in the church of Corinth, they they didn't, uh uh-uh. They ran him out of town, actually, on one occasion. It happened to him. If it happened to him, it's definitely going to happen to us. And Paul goes on. It was the kind, watch this, it was the kind of sorrow God wants it, the kind of sorrow that this severe letter, this confrontational sin calling out letter, the kind of sorrow that that letter, those words brought, was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. Now that messes with some people's view of God, doesn't it? 
Because lots of us, we have this sort of view of God that it's all like Disney World. Right? It's just fun and games and there's, there's no sorrow inside of that. It's all just cool. But Paul writes these words. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. He wants us to have that kind of sorrow so that you are not harmed by us in any way. It goes on. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. So that kind of sorrow, that kind of true, genuine repentance, you see what Paul's saying there, true, genuine repentance saves our souls from the flames of hell. No nice way to say it. Saves us from that kind of eternal torment separated from God in a place the Bible, not me, the Bible calls hell. And Paul says there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. He's not sorry about that because it's leading people to the place where God wants them. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. All seven of those non-repentance lines I just talked you through, those are what Paul would call worldly sorrow. They are not real repentance, and they result in spiritual death. Translated, that means hell. Non-repentance results in forever spiritual death. It's called hell. And then Paul goes on. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, such a readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. God has a view. He has a perspective on what real repentance is. It isn't just nebulous. It's not just out there somewhere. And it's encapsulated in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience. That means there are these markers, these benchmarks that represent what true repentance is. And we can know whether we're truly repentant or not. Other people can know whether we're truly repentant or not. The first marker of true repentance is that I recognize very simply that my sin is wrong. I recognize that my sin is wrong and it's sort of like a duh kind of a thing, but it starts, all starts there. I recognize that my sin is wrong. You feel it. You mean it. You say it. You believe it. My sin is wrong. And that's exactly the thing that's missing from those seven non-repentance lines we dumped out. I see your sin, but not mine. I confess your sin, but not mine. Your sin's gross. Mine's not so gross. The apologizing to God and then thinking that he's somehow in your debt. The incessant talking about how bad you feel again and again and again when you do that one thing, but then you don't ever stop doing that one thing. The confess, apologize, do the same thing. Confess, apologize, do the same thing cycle. The devil made me do it. Blame game. The people who it's always somebody else's fault. The at least I didn't kill somebody excuse. The blame it on the poor parenting in my past duck and run deal. All of those things, if and when we say them every time, we're just dodging the real issue. And the real issue is, I sinned, and it was wrong. I sinned, and it was wrong. That is always and forever the first stop on the road to repentance. I sinned, and it was wrong. You know the story of King David of ancient Israel. He had this absolutely sordid affair with a woman named Bathsheba. Sort of the tail end of the story is that David felt inclined to murder Bathsheba's husband, sort of cover his tracks. Uriah the Hittite, who was Bathsheba's husband, he was a man of great moral character, great guy. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 11 sometime. And all along, David's copying those non-repentance lines. If you read the story of his confrontation and so 
He wouldn't just come clean and admit that he was wrong. He wouldn't just step up like a man and admit that he had sinned. He wouldn't do it. And he actually gives us this unbelievable insight into what was going on inside of him around his dodging of the issue. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. The words of King David in the aftermath of the Bathsheba affair, in the aftermath of the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Psalm 32, starting in verse 3. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long, David says. So he's hiding it. He's trying to sweep it under rugs, cover it up, forget about it, blame it on someone else. He refused to confess his sin and what happens? His body wasted away and he groaned all day long. Now what do we know about King David? One word. Stud. Right? He's a stud. Right? You read the story of him and Goliath and one rock to the skull. This giant guy. Cuts his head off. He's a stud, right? The scripture tells us David was a ruddy man. Like, there's this gorgeous complexion. Ladies, you'd have been all over David. Like white on rice. Six-pack abs. The whole deal. Bulging biceps. Facial angles that are beautiful. David's a stud. And look what he says. I'm hiding my sin. I'm not confessing my sin. I'm holding it in. I'm not... I'm not dealing with it. And that studly body wasted away. I groaned all day long. He was wilting, wasn't he? I'm going to go out onto some theologically thin ice. Go with me if you would. I'm going to be really careful here. You look at sickness that is endemic in our society today. All kinds of weird stuff happening to people's bodies, people's bodies breaking down in ways that's almost inexplicable. Right? It's happening, some of us, it's happening everywhere you go. And you read the words of King David, who was a stud, and he talks about how he refused to confess his sin, and as he refused to confess his sin, his body wasted away. And don't we have to ask the question, Is the endemic sickness in our society that is everywhere, is it related? And I'm not saying it's the two plus two equals four kind of perfect one-to-one equation. But I'm saying, could it be? Could it be that the sickness that is endemic in our society is partially the result of the unconfessed sin that we're carrying around? We're just not dealing with it. We cover it up. We sweep it away. We try to forget it's there and what's happening. My body wastes away. It's eating us from the inside out. Now, please hear me very, very, very clearly. I am not saying that every sickness has a spiritual component to it. I would never say that. Some people do. I don't buy that. I'm saying this text in particular raises the possibility, doesn't it? That what's going on in my body could be the result of unconfessed sin that I'm not dealing with before God. Wasting away, groaning all day long. And David goes on. Day and night, your, that's God's hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. He's wilting. He's not confessing his sin, and he's wilting. But then look what happens. He turns a corner all on the word finally. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, to God. And stopped trying to sweep it under the rug, stopped trying to hide my guilt. 
I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion, excuse me, to the Lord. And you forgave me. And that's God, isn't it? We confess all our stuff to him and what's he do? Beats us up with it? No. He forgives us. David closes with, all my guilt is gone. All. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west. Gone. True repentance begins with confessing our sin to God. Stopping the hiding, the excusing, the minimizing. We just step up. I'm guilty. I've done wrong. I've sinned. End of conversation. Second marker of repentance. I recognize it is not about getting caught. It isn't even close to about getting caught. I have the absolute greatest empathy, I have the absolute greatest sympathy for a guy named Tiger Woods. I really do. My heart breaks for the guy. This probably won't ever happen, but I would love to be able to someday have a redemptive spiritual conversation with him. We don't run in the same circles. And what we know about Tiger is that he got caught, didn't he? He got caught, right? You remember the whole sordid tale, runs his SUV into the tree while his wife is swinging a golf club at the car, breaking up, right? And that kind of thing, it it happens a lot. Not necessarily the crashing the SUV into the tree and the wife beating up the car with the golf clubs. But people get caught. Some of us get caught in our sin, right? It happens all the time. And you have to wonder, if Tiger hadn't been caught, if he hadn't been found out, if he hadn't been uncovered, would he have ever stopped misbehaving? Maybe, maybe not. But get this, the second marker of true repentance is not about whether or not you get caught. Without any doubt, Tiger is very, 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 very sorry that he got caught. Right? Just look at how it's wrecked him. Lost his wife, lost his kids, lost his family, lost a huge piece of his por- uh, fortune. He cannot make a putt to save his life. Right? Those eight-foot putts that he used to just nail like it was a walk in the park. He... Those are two putts now, sometimes worse. Like the wreckage, I have no doubt that he's very, very sorry But the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience that marks out true repentance isn't anything about being caught. It's about a sorrow that comes from an understanding, a deep understanding, a deep knowledge of the damage that our sin, my sin, your sin does to the heart of God himself. When I screw up, when I do that thing that I had you bring to mind I'm wrecking the heart of God. That's what we're doing. Anytime we sin, every time we sin, no matter how big you think it is or how small you think it is, we're wrecking the heart of God. And real genuine repentance is an awakening to that reality. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's as though my sin, that thing that I did yesterday or today or five minutes ago, it's like that sin causes Jesus to be nailed to the cross again and again and again and again. And we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, why in the world would we want to inflict that kind of pain on our Savior, the one who did so much for us already? Why? Why would I want to nail him to the cross again and again and again? I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that. It's not about being caught. It's about an understanding around how our sin wrecks the very heart of God. The third marker of true repentance is that I then turn and I go in the opposite direction that I was headed. 
I turn and I go in the opposite direction of my sin and I run headlong into the arms, the waiting arms of God. When I was sinning, that thing that I did last week that we all brought to mind, I was headed this way, the very opposite way of God himself and God's way, way, way over there and my sin is way, way, way over there and I'm going away from him over to this sin stuff because, well, it feels good and I kind of like it and it hasn't caused me too much pain yet. That'll come later and I just like it over here. I'm plunging headlong into the very opposite direction of God. And then when I get confronted or however it happens, I get caught or as the scriptures say that uses these words, I come to my senses. I then demonstrate actively and tangibly my repentance. And I run straight from there into the arms of God himself who is over there. It's the very picture of the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? Jesus tells a story about a man. He had two sons. The younger son asked his father to give him his portion of the family estate, kind of an early inheritance deal, which, by the way, in that day was unheard of, unprecedented. The father does it. The son takes the money. He runs off to a distant land. He wastes an incredible sum of money. Wild living like you just can't imagine. The money runs out. Famine sets into the land he's in. He's in dire straits, deep weeds. So deep he has to take a job feeding pigs. Ever done that? Yuck. It's so bad that as he's feeding the pigs, he's realizing how hungry he is, and he thinks, man, this stuff would taste pretty good. He's that hungry. And then the scripture uses these words. The young man finally came to his senses. He came to his senses. And who did he think of? Who did he remember? his father and then in humility he recognizes how foolish he's been and he decides to set back to his father asking pleading for forgiveness and mercy and he doesn't know what he's going to be met with back at home as the story unfolds though the son sets off toward home and the father is sitting watching And he notices his son coming while still, the scripture says, a long way off. He's been waiting, just like God's been waiting for you. And the father got up out of his chair and ran to meet his son. Arms wide, wide open. Of course I forgive you. Of course you're welcome here. As a matter of fact, you're so welcome, we're going to have a party for you. We're going to kill the fattened calf, and we're going to celebrate, get the ring, get the robe. Come on. My son, who was way over there, is home. He's home. And that is the picture of our behavior in the aftermath of true repentance. I was going this way, I come to my senses, and I turn around. I turn around. My back is to that. I'm going this way now. I'm not going this way. I'm not going this way. I'm going that way. And I run home to God. The home that I, we, us, were all made for. And then this true repentance deal produces in us this amazing stuff. 2 Corinthians 7.11 captures it. Just see what this godly sorrow, this true repentance produced in you. Earnestness, concern to clear yourself, indignation, alarm, longing to see me, zeal, a readiness to punish wrong. You show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. You're square. You're square with God. You're square with people. True repentance really means that you take your sin very seriously because it is. Because your sin and my sin wrecks the heart of God. And so you humbly step up and you take responsibility. You seek forgiveness from God and from people when necessary. And then we walk it out, folks. This isn't just something we talk about. This isn't just something that sort of changes inside of our thinking, though that's a part of it. 
we walk it out. It is a visible, tangible change of behavior that moves us in God's direction. I'm not over there anymore because that's sin. I'm over here. I'm with God. I'm home where I belong. We you close your eyes and bow your heads, please? And I just invite you to go to prayer. Think on these things with the Lord, if you would. heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to get that thing, that thing that you're calling the worst thing that you did in the past week, the quote biggest sin of your past week. Would you get it back in your mind and then would you ask yourself this question have I walked through repentance with that thing? Have I stepped through repentance with that thing? Or maybe it isn't that thing, maybe something entirely different. I just want to give you some time and some space to step through the repentance deal with whatever it is, whatever it is. Starts with letting God know that you know it's wrong. Yeah, I've sinned. God, I blew it. And then expressing to God how you understand and you are sorry for and you don't ever want to damage God's heart again. And then you orient your life in the opposite direction. You run home to God. Have you stepped through that with the Lord? If not, now's a great time. No better time, actually. process right there is something I think you want to step through with the Lord every single time you sin, every time you blow it, every time you do anything that damages the heart of God and it just becomes a regular part of your interactions with the Lord, you just walk through repentance, the scripture tells us to keep short accounts around our sin that includes with God when we mess up we just deal with it we don't excuse it, we don't minimize it, we don't hide it, we don't blame it on someone else, we just deal with Maybe today your repentance work actually has to start with you stepping into faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. And what's true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad it is, that thing that you brought to mind, no matter how dark it is, how broken it is, how messed up it is, you can stop running from God. You can stop pushing back against Him And you can repent. You can repent one time for everything in your past and you can just give him your heart and your life. And you can turn around from all of that stuff and you can run headlong into the waiting arms of God. That's what he wants to do. He wants to redeem you, make you new. He wants to forgive you once and for all, wash you clean in the shed blood of Christ, the one who died on the cross for you. And if that's the desire of your heart today, you can tell that to God. You can tell it to him through a prayer. Just invite you to pray with me along these lines. God, I'm a sinner and I repent. And God, with everything in me, I thank you for sending Jesus to take my place, to forgive me through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. And to you, Jesus, I say thank you for taking my place. The freedom that you've brought to my life, I can't thank you enough for. 
Here's my heart. Here's every last thing that I am. Wash me, make me new, make me whole. I'm yours, God, and I love you with my whole heart. And that decision to step into a relationship with Jesus Christ is the biggest decision of your whole life. It's such a big deal. It matters so much that around here we like to acknowledge when somebody makes that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me. Nobody's looking around this room. It's just me, you, and God right now. If you stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ with me just then, would you be real bold and just lift your hand high and lock eyes with me and just say, yep, that's me today. I'm stepping into faith in Christ today. Don't be shy. Just say, yep, here I am. Yeah, way to go. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And yes, sir. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And yes, absolutely. Yes. Way to go. God's changing you right now. It's making you brand new. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for these who are crossing the line of faith in you. God, we pray that you would surround them, that that newness of life that you pledge in your word would sweep in and sweep across, and that they would have a tangible sense of the freedom that is in you. And then, God, I pray for us that we would be repentant people, that we wouldn't try to hide or minimize or duck our sin, but that we would just acknowledge it, and that we would just make it right, and that we would desire to go in the opposite direction. We don't want to break your heart. We don't want to wreck your heart. We don't want to cause pain, God, to you. Help us live lives that honor you. And when we miss your best for us, God, help us clean it up in a way that still honors you, brings glory to your name. The second chances you extend to us, God, wow. Whoa, thank you. You're our God and it's you alone who we worship today. You're the best and it's in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Everyone agreed together and said, 